What does it really look like when the church is the church? If you want the clearest picture you'll ever find of that, I encourage you to journey with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We find ourselves today in the 28th chapter of the story. We've been journeying since January, beginning in Genesis. Now we've just completed two weeks ago the chapter on the crucifixion, chapter 27. In the story was on the resurrection. If you're following along with us in the chronological reading of Scripture in the story, for those of you that aren't, it's just a reference to the story of God. Today we find ourselves in the book of Acts. It's post-resurrection. The followers of Jesus have seen Him ascend into heaven, and they're asking a question now that Jesus is gone. So now what's the plan? What are we are supposed to do now in this moment? When you step out of the Gospels into the book of Acts, you discover, not discover God's plan for the church, you discover that God's plan is the church. The book of Acts is a history of the early church written by Luke. And when you want to understand what God intended for the church to be, this is the place to look. This description that we're about to read from Acts 2 beginning in verse number 42 is, a, is an image. It is a snapshot, a photograph. It's kind of a, you're peering into a day in the life of the early church. You're raising the window seal and looking into the window or into the soul of the early church. This is what the church was intended to be. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things the early church did In that one particular verse, the apostles' teaching would be for us the Bible, the Scripture. They didn't have a compiled New Testament at that time. And so they were pouring themselves into the apostles' teaching. But for us to do that, it would be the Scripture. They devoted themselves to biblical teaching and to fellowship, which means more than just some surface relationships. They had community. They were committed to each other. Uh, There was a breaking of bread, which would be what we do when we take communion together. And we did that a couple weeks in a row uh, just recently and it's this moment where we signify the sacrifice of the Lord on our behalf, our commitment to Him, His commitment to us, and our commitment to each other. And fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. And this is an area where we need to be stretched more as a church. We need to become a praying church. That's how I believe we should be known. When we relocate, people talk about us as a little church with a sign in Saxe. And then when we relocate here in a few months, that moniker is going to change to the big church out on the George Bush Tollway. Or they're going to say, uh, because we're going to have nearly a 90-foot lit cross tower, it immediately is going to become an icon and a descriptive point. People are going to say that church with a big old tall cross that's lit up out there. And while those are fine descriptions, I want us to be known more than just the big church on the tollway or the church with a tall lit up cross. We need to be known as the church that prays. And it's not going to be happening because we institute a prayer program. And it's not going to happen because we call a special prayer service. It's going to happen because you and I make a commitment in our faith family to say prayer is going to be the foundation of our individual lives. When prayer becomes a foundation of our individual lives, it finds its way into the fabric of our corporate well-being. I want to challenge you to start off every day getting on your knees, committing your day to the Lord. 
to pray through the relationships in your life, to pray through your day at work. Everything about your life saturated in prayer. Prayer for a Christ follower should be a continual conversation, a lifestyle. Praying should be as natural to us as breathing, and it will be once we recognize our need for true dependence upon God. And then verse 43 goes on to paint the picture of the early church. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I want you to take this snapshot, this picture that we have of the early church, and I want you to compare and contrast that with some of the cultural images we have, some photos, some pictures, some thoughts that we have, our culture has shaped of what we think of when we think of church. Stands in stark contrast to the image God gave us in His Word of what the church was supposed to be. Think of some of our cultural images of the way that we approach church. Image number one would be like a movie theater. A movie theater is where you go on the weekend and you stay for an hour or two and the purpose of going to a movie theater is to be entertained, maybe a little bit inspired. If it works out good, that's, uh, that's usually what happens. And it usually keeps us distracted from all of our problems long enough to be some escape from all of the worries of life. When you go to a movie, you sit down for a few moments in some comfortable seats and you enjoy some entertainment. Then when you walk out, the first thing you do is you put on your Siskel and Ebert hat and you begin to critique the movie. You wonder, was it, was it, you know, did the, was it the plot drag on? Was it too long? Was it, was it a good movie? Did the actors play up to their expectation? And you decide with whoever you're talking about whether to give it two thumbs up or two thumbs down. I want you to think for a moment about how we tend to approach church because subconsciously the mentality that we bring here with us is often like the main mentality we bring into a movie theater. We think of ourselves as an audience and we come here often to be entertained, hopefully a little bit inspired. Maybe we'll laugh a little bit, maybe we'll cry a little bit. And if all that happens, then it's been a relatively good service. And then when we walk out of the church, we often put our same Siskel and Ebert hat on. We talk among ourselves, we'll either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I want us to, I want to say something really clear this morning is that, that if we're truly the New Testament church, you are not the audience. If we're truly the New Testament church, the point of being here is, for not your, is not for your entertainment. You're not the reason why all of us got up early this morning and decided to come into this house today. We are here, and yes, there is an audience, but you and I are not that audience. God is the audience. He is the reason for us being in this room. The early church wasn't into coming to a place for an hour or so to get some entertainment. Instead, it says in verse number 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word devoted literally means, it's an important word, and it means they were committed to. They committed themselves to. Living underneath the authority of the instruction of God was a way of life to them. It wasn't a form of entertainment. They weren't just coming together to hear stories, but the word of God, this apostles' teaching, was the beacon that guided their lives. It was what directed them. The word of God, in turn, should be our compass. We should unapologetically, as a church, be 
able to say, we are standing upon the Word of God. And sometimes that's going to be popular and sometimes it will be unpopular and politically incorrect. But public opinion polls are not our guide as a church or as followers of Christ. Scripture guides and directs all of our decisions. It determines the decisions we make financially. It determines our career paths and how we relate in the career that we have chosen. It directs our paths in our marriages and our families. It should even direct and inform the way we view life politically and inform the way we vote. It's got to be our guide because we have devoted ourselves to what the Scripture says. Church is not coming to a place for an hour or two to be entertained, but we are devoted devoting our lives to this thing we call church. It's not just church, it's life. In earlier verses in Acts 2, the very first sermon preached, it's interesting to read at the end of that sermon, the response of the people was this, verse 37. When the people heard that sermon, the sermon, it was the Apostle Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? What do we do now? We've heard this. Now what do we do? And my prayer for us is that we come into this room and we gather together and we hear the word and we receive it in the same spirit those people received the word that day. God, what do I do now? What needs to change in my life as a result of hearing the word of God? Instead of saying, how was it? And doing the Siskel and Ebert thing, we need to ask God, what do I need to do differently in my life after having been exposed to this word to bring my life into alignment with your word? I think it's a prayer that all of us should pray when we walk through the doors and say, God, help your word comfort me when I need comfort and convict me when I need convict me, convicting, but don't let me leave here the same way way as I came in. In the early church, there was this common commitment to voting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to aligning their lives with it. They were the first generation Christians. It was all new to them. And they're hearing this teaching and they're saying, what needs to change in my life if I'm going to be serious about being a Christ follower? And that kind of mentality is not going to be a part of our church or your life if we approach ourselves as an audience that is coming to be entertained every weekend. A.W. Tozer, generations ago, wrote this. And if it was ever true in Tozer's generation, it is much more so today. Tozer said, Our churches these days are filled with a soft breed of Christian that must be fed a constant diet of harmless fun to keep them interested. It was true in Tozer's day, then it's a hundred times more true in our day We're all a little bit that way. We can be entertainment and inspiration junkies. Matter of fact, a lot of us have our DVRs already set. We've got our entertainment lined out for this week. So when entertainment doesn't fit our schedule, whether it's ball games or our favorite show, we make sure those things get plugged into our lives. So much of our lives revolved around being entertained. And so we come to church. We like to be challenged, but we don't want to change. We like to be fed, but we don't want to spend any time in the kitchen. We want the church to be united so long as everybody is united around what I like and what I think is best. And we want performance most of the time instead of worship. We want to watch instead of participate. And we say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come into this place as long as you come into this place in a way that I find comfortable. And we say to God, God, I'm here for you, but we're constantly saying that with the prerequisite fighting against this mentality of me-ism. 
We've got to stop thinking about the church as a place where there is a performance and we are the audience and stop understanding that we are walking into this place as worshipers and there's only one audience and that is God. Another image that I think we confuse with the church, our culture has given us is this idea of a store. Any given week, um, we'll spend an hour or two walking the aisles of a store shopping for something. We're looking for what we want at the prices we like, and if we don't find it at one store, then we'll go to another, and we spend a lot of time at Walmart or at Target or Walgreens or at the mall, and we walk up and down the aisle shopping for what we want. And this is the language or the mentality, I think, unintentionally that has become a part of the church and our consumer-based culture to the point when I ask people that are new to the church or they're kind of looking around, I ask them, so what brought you here? And they will say, most of the time it's insinuated, but a lot of the times it is just people come right out and say it and they don't mean anything by it. They just will come right out and say, we're church shopping. That's what we're doing. We're looking for a church. And the good news is in Dallas, if you church shop, you can go to a different one every Sunday and die before you get to all of them because we live in the Bible Belt. We're here to find out what you can offer us. That's the way it's expressed. We want to see what's on the shelf at this church, and then we're going to go find out what's on the shelf at the other church. And I understand that mentality to some degree. I mean, the church is probably guilty of propagating that idea and creating a consumer mentality and treating people like they are consumers, trying to give them what they want. And of course, that's how they're going to respond if that's the way we act as a church. But that's not what you find in the early church. We find a group of people who are committed, it says, to fellowship. In other words, they are deeply devoted to one another. That's not what consumers do. They're not deeply devoted to one another. Walk into a Black Friday store when there's one Tickle Me Elmo left on the shelf and they're cutthroat getting to the Tickle Me Elmo because Johnny's going to have a lousy Christmas if he doesn't get what he asked for. And so they're knocking everybody out of the way. That's what consumers do. Or when you're in the holiday rush, we're playing bumper cars to get the last parking spot up front because four of us got our blinkers on waiting to get in that spot. And we say Christian cuss words when somebody doesn't allow us to get into those spots. That's what consumers do. And then we, we bring that mentality into the church. But here's the way the early church is described. Verse 44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. There was a unity, an idea of togetherness. I mean, this is the idea of family, of brothers and sisters sharing and preferring somebody above themselves. When it says commonality, it doesn't mean they shared all the same opinions. Obviously, they had different opinions. I mean, the early church shows us that on the first day when the Spirit fell, there were all these different languages from different places and different ethnicities, but, but they became brothers and sisters around the commonality of who they had given their lives to, and a lot of the other differences kind of melted away in the light of, we're risking our lives to be a follower of this man Jesus, the early church, became a family. And that's what my prayer is for this church, is that we become brothers and sisters. Yes, a big family, but still a family. I was reading a story this week. It was a fascinating story about a guy named Randy and, and uh, his partner in uh, a furniture delivery business named Gary. 
they, uh, they worked as furniture delivery men, and Haley and I have moved enough times in our life to have a deep appreciation for people who do this for a living. It is not a fun job. They earn every bit of the money they're paid, and that's what Gary and Randy did for a living. And when they went and delivered furniture, without fail, almost every time a customer would comment on how much they resembled each other. They look a lot alike. And I've got a picture that I pulled off of one of the articles of, of Gary and Randy, and they do look a lot alike. I mean, they look like some other furniture guys that I know that have delivered furniture in my lifetime, but they do look quite a bit alike. A rule changed in the state of Maine that allowed Randy, who was adopted, to find out what was on his birth certificate. So he did a little research and he found out that his biological parents had already passed away. And in his research he found out he had a brother that was born within a year of his birth. And his brother's birth date was June 10, 1974. Some time passed and they went on several more deliveries and they were told several more times that they looked a lot alike. And one day they got into this house and this lady just wouldn't leave them alone. You guys got to be related. I mean, there nobody can look this close together and not be, we're not related, man. We didn't know each other until we started working this job. So they get in the car going down the road and Gary said, you know what, have I, or Randy said, you know what have I got to lose? And he looked over at Gary and said, Gary, when's your birthday? And Gary said, June 10th, 1974. Why? And after the conversation, they found out, sure enough, they're blood kin, biological brothers. Didn't know each other. They started working together. And here they are in the same van, in the same truck, up in a main market. And they are related all the time and didn't know it. People saw the family resemblance, but they never really knew they were related. And I love the article. Uh, you can find it. You, you, you Google it. You'll find Gary and Randy furniture delivery brothers and it'll pull it up they've been on talk shows and all that but the article that I read one of the neat things that I read in there is this quote it says there's nothing like family especially when you didn't know you had one (laughs) for some of us that's a funnier quote than for others but (laughs) I read that story and I thought as neat as it was I thought it sounded familiar it's not that it sounded familiar because those kinds of things happen every day It sounded familiar because there was something in that story that rang true to me. And I was trying to figure out, why does this seem so familiar? And the reality is, having been in leadership in the church all of these years, I've watched over and over again people who had nothing in common outside of church. Whether it's their race or their economic background or their education or whatever, their language. They walk into this church or another church and they come to relationship with Christ. And they get involved in a local church and they begin to develop and realize they have family that are often closer to them than their own blood kin. They begin to have a family resemblance with people that they had nothing else in common. There was no commonality in their birth order, no commonality in their race or their language or their economic standing. But then they meet Jesus and all of a sudden there is a commonality that binds them. Just this last week, we baptized several people. One of them in particular is from a different culture, a different nation, came to America, found Christ, and I said to her on this platform, as I often say, you now have a new family. There is a new relationship. You may be miles from home, but you now have a family. And that's what we've been called to as a church, to be brothers and sisters, to have a family mentality when we meet together, to put each other's needs ahead of our own and sacrifice and serve one another. Don't think of our ourselves first or what we like or our preferences but put the needs of another before ourselves that's the way the early church was known a family that deferred to the other so here's what I want us to do I want to challenge some of you 
that are here this morning and you come regularly on Sunday mornings and you attend and you receive and you leave and you kind of enjoy remaining anonymous. You don't want anybody in your business. You don't want anybody challenging you to volunteer or serve in ministry. And maybe you've been burned in the past and you kind of like all that. And you're afraid to be involved in, in, in volunteerism or serving in the local church in any kind of ministry capacity because you're afraid of what it might cost you. And some of the ministry positions in our church, the higher level of ministry positions they are, uh, the more probability they're going to require church membership. And I know some of you are not comfortable with church membership, and I understand that because when you think of church membership, you think of some kind of card that you get to be a part of a social organization or a country club, and I get that. I don't like that kind of membership either. But when we talk of membership here, we're trying to invite you to be a member of a family. And it takes commitment to being a contributing part of any kind of family, a mutual commitment. I will admit we're inviting you into an imperfect family. We know that. We're somewhat dysfunctional. No, we're dysfunctional. I'll just admit it. We're dysfunctional. We have plenty of cousin Eddies that go here You know who you are. Well, you may not know who you are, but we know who you are. (laughs) But that's part of being a part of a family. It's being together even when we're Cousin Eddie's. It's being together even when there are all these kinds of differences. And I'm glad you're coming. But I also know that one of the things that will really enhance your spiritual growth and one of the things this church needs in order to be healthy is for people that are out there just wanting to remain anonymous and come and receive. Instead of asking, what can I get? They come to the place in their spiritual growth and they ask, how can I give? Where can I serve? How can I expand the kingdom of God through this local body? And that's what the early church was known for. Not for customers shopping for what they want, but brothers and sisters doing life together. Here's another image that our culture has given us when we think of church, a restaurant. If, if you go to a restaurant, you expect to be served and waited on. So what if you went to this restaurant today after church and you walked in and they handed you a dirty dishcloth and apologized and said, you know what, I mean, could you, we're busy, could you wipe down a few of the tables in the back before you sit down to eat? And about the time you politely did that, they said, man, we're overrun, we really need somebody to wash some dishes in the back. Um, and if you'll get all these dishes washed, hopefully somebody will come along to relieve you and then we can sit down and serve you. That would not be a financially sustainable model to operate a restaurant. But that's the mentality that we bring into church a lot of times. We think of church as a restaurant. We come in and we sit down and we are served and we're waited upon. And our job then is to consume and to be fed. As you talk to people about their spiritual growth, they'll say, whether it's people coming into this church from, a new ch- or from another church or they're leaving this church, they often say, I need to go someplace where I can be fed. And that's okay. I understand that. That's not a bad answer. But understand spiritual growth and maturity happens more quickly in the kitchen than it does at the table. So what many of us need to do is push away from the table, put down the menu, lay down the fork, and get in the kitchen and serve and work because that's what it means to be a part of a faith family called the church. 
You see it in the early church in verse number 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Sacrificial generosity. Taking of what belonged to them and was rightfully theirs. Willingly laying aside their time, their talent, and their treasure for those brothers and sisters among them that had need. This morning I I came in, as I often do, well before 6 o'clock and Pastor Bear was here and he's here early, but normally I beat him here and I walked in and the lights were on, the alarm was already off and I came in, I hear him in the sanctuary and, and uh, I just said, man, what are you doing here early? And the first thing out of his mouth was, man, I love North Place people. I do too, but I don't know about that much at 5.45 in the morning, but he was really loving some North Place people at 5.45 this morning. And I knew that that announcement was going to follow up with a story. And, and he told me yesterday of a story, he became aware of another family that attended another church that was in a bind, a pretty bad deadline, and, and they needed to get out of a house, and there was some finances riding on it. He got on the phone, called a few of our people, don't even know those people, just know they're believers, brothers and sisters from another church family that needed some help. And several of our folks showed up over there and help them in a time of need. It's the church being the church. One of the things that Haley and I end up doing inevitably on our date nights is shopping. Now, I don't tend to find that very romantic uh, unless it's Bass Pro or Cabela's and she doesn't find that romantic. And so I'm not into shopping, but she's into shopping. And if I'm into her, I'm into shopping, and that's when it gets romantic. (laughs) Right? Yes, right. Friday night, we had one of our date nights. We wound up shopping. And this time, we walked into one of the places where I, you know, the, the, the romantic part of her when I shop is when I follow along with her, and I'm interested in whatever she's shopping in, and, and I'm doing my best to be interested you know, this time we found our way into Vera Bradley, and my lack of interest became apparent. It's hard to stay interested in Vera Bradley headbands and bags, purses and pencils, because in my opinion, Vera Bradley is designer camo for women. That's what Vera Bradley is. Eventually, she will take notice of my lack of interest. She'll say, go on, look at your man stuff. Now, I've done enough shopping looking for a man stuff to have this happen to me. You ever been in a store when you need to have a question answered and you're in a hurry and you look at somebody and automatically by the way they're dressed, it's just an immediate assumption they work there. You don't think twice about it and you walk up to them, show them this deal and say, how much is this? And they look at you like you're an idiot that you even thought they worked there. But dude, if you got a red shirt on and khakis at Target, you look like you work there. Don't wear a blue shirt and khaki pants to Best Buy and not expect to get asked that question. If you got camo on and Bass Pro, you look like you work there. Okay? I would love for us as a church to have that same confusion. Where people walk in the doors of the church and they just don't know who are the pastors and who. Everybody's just serving. Everybody's doing something. Everybody's a busy bee helping expand the work. They don't know if you're a minister or not a minister. They just know that we, they walk in and everybody's busy, busy, busy. And they see us, not clergy and laity, but they see clarity because that's how the New Testament church is described. Everybody doing something to advance the kingdom of God. And I would love for people to walk into this church and think that any of us work here. Another image that we think about when we think about church is a gas station. 
You pull in once a week for a fill-up. It's a quick trip. You get filled up. You head back out. You really don't think about it again until your gauge gets a bit low, and so you swing back by. That's how we approach church. We fill up station. You come once a week. You get a quick Bible fix, a spiritual fill, then you head back out. You don't think about it much the next week until you feel your tank getting low or Sunday rolls around. But it's different in the early church. Every day they continued, verse 46 of Acts 2, every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I love the two words there, glad and sincere. That is the spirit of the early church. They were joyful and authentic. And it's interesting because if you ask people who are not a part of church, they're outsiders looking in, to use two words to describe the church. They're not going to pick joyful and authentic. They are typically going to pick judgmental and hypocritical. So can we pray, God, would you make us a joyful, authentic, glad, and sincere community of family members? It said they met together every day. It doesn't mean they they had to be in the temple courts every day. They met in their homes. They met in their neighborhoods. But they had this idea, this radical idea that the church wasn't a building. The church wasn't a place. That the church was a movement made up of people that invaded all of this place. And that's, that's the problem is that we tend to project on the church by default that it is a place. And we look at it through that set of lenses. And when you see the church is a place, you're going to think you're an audience and that we are performers and that you come here to get entertained. But every metaphor that I've used today as an image of the church is a place, but a biblical picture of the church is the fact it's not a place at all. Over the years, I've helped my kids with homework. They're getting to the point now where they're, I can't help them. And they look at me like, I'm dumb. I have an earned doctrine. But I'm having to announce to them an earned doctrine in theology does not make me a science expert. And this is radical news to them. But back in the day when I could help them with their uh, homework, they were picking out nouns. And oftentimes, we'd have to circle the noun in a paragraph. And then we would have to identify it as a person, place, or thing. I think many of us, if we were reading through one of their paragraphs today and the word church is there, we would automatically know it as a noun. And then we wrote the descriptor out beside it. We would put a place. But this building is not a church. We are the church. And when we understand that, it totally changes our approach to being committed part of a faith family. This is not membership in a country club where you have your card and you get your benefits. But we are a member of a family. Wherever we are, that's the church. And we see this spirit and this mentality in the early church. It wasn't a place. It was people. And the last thing. This morning, the last image I want to leave you with is the image of a fitness center. For some of us, this picture is the closest we'll ever have to seeing the inside of a gym. (laughs) And I think that's how a lot of us think about church. You say, but pastor, a gym is where people go to get in shape. Well, not really. If you do your research, you'll find out that the majority of the people that go to a gym are already fit. And they go to a gym to stay fit. The people who are not fit, that want to be fit, are intimidated to go to a gym because they don't want to work out beside all the fit people. That's the church. People don't want to go to church because the church is for people who have their stuff all together. The church is for people whose marriages are in shape. The church is for people who are spiritually fit. And I compare myself to them and I won't measure up. So the best thing to do is just stay away. 
The Chicago Tribune did an article about a gym in Chicago that had a radical concept. They started a gym and you're not allowed to go into that gym unless you need to lose at least 50 pounds. Because they said in that article, oftentimes gyms or fitness centers are their own worst enemy because the very people that need their help most often don't feel comfortable in coming. Let's not be that place. I think we can easily turn the church into that where we all come in and we look as impressive as we possibly can. Make our family look like the Cleaver family. Everything's just right. There's no dysfunction here. We're all in shape. Our marriage is in shape. We got it all together. And when we act that way, we send the message to the people that need the church that this is not the kind of place that they can come. But we need to come to the point where we realize we are all broken. We are all imperfect. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are on a journey. We had not arrived. And every other broken, messed up person in the world is welcome to take this journey with us. I love the last verse of chapter 2, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was a place daily where outsiders were invited to take the journey. And they said yes to being a part of that family. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place today. I want to invite you. Prayer team, would you make yourself available this morning? I want to invite you today, if you're not a uh, Christ follower, not a believer, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, today's a really good day for you to say, I don't want the fluff, I don't want everything the culture has made church, I, I want to be a real Christ follower. These people today that are in front of this building are standing ready to join in prayer with you to follow Jesus if you're a believer and you have miracles need of miracles in your life this is a great opportunity for you to let us be your burden bearer in some way to put our shoulder underneath the cross that you carry and be the church with you to pray to help you carry the burden that you carry today for a miracle whatever the need may be in your life Ephesians 3.10 I don't know why God picked us but he did I have no idea in all of our brokenness but when God got ready to extend his glory it says his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known he could have picked any way to do it but he chose his church. The church wasn't, the book of Acts and the letters, they're not God's plan for the church. They reveal to us that God's plan is the church. For some reason, he picked us. There's a lot of folks out there that have a lot of negative things to say about the church. And I'm on the inside. I see the works worse than you do. And I'm amazed at the mercy of God that he still loves us. And he's still willing to use us to tell his story. And if you want to love what God loves, you're going to fall in love with his church all over again. And if you've been offended so that you can't, you need to take that word from God and ask the Lord, what shall I do now? Bring me to a place where I fall in love with your church.
I'm going to ask you today, I'm going to speak a word of blessing as a dismissal. But if you need prayer today for a miracle in your life, if you need prayer today because you need to give your heart to Jesus, I want you to come even as I speak this blessing. We're going to keep this environment worshipful. And I want us to shoulder and burden each other's burdens today as we believe together for a touch of God. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would approach your word today in the same way the believers that heard the first sermon. What shall we do? What needs to change in my life today so that I don't leave here the way I came in? I pray, Lord, that burdens will be lifted. I pray, Lord, that you will convict us to become contributing members of the body of Christ with our talents and our treasure and our labor. The church needs them, but their spiritual formation needs that step. And I pray today that you will call us into being fully devoted followers of Jesus, expanding the kingdom through this local church. Bless them and keep them. Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction. In Jesus' name.